You're listening to The Local Maximum, Episode 70. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. All right, this is going to be a really fun solo show today. Start with a little history. We've got some bad news about social media and communication and it, in its current form in 2019 online, but then we're going to follow it up with some really good news. My love letter to podcasting in the late 2010s, which in many ways personifies what the internet could or should be. So why do I think that podcasting is so awesome? Well, you need to listen to the full show to find out or skip ahead. But if you if you do skip ahead, you'll miss some really interesting tidbits and you won't fully understand what I'm trying to say. So Yes, I'm very happy with the state of the Potterverse right now. That's the universe of podcasts. And hopefully, we can take advantage of this in the next few years as we keep going with the local maximum. As I said, we're going to do a deep dive on the history of communication mediums, which cover controversy and opinion. And we're going to see how some of this played out over time uh, until uh, until today, until, until the era of social media and you know, the train wreck that it has apparently become, although there are great things about it too, as we shall see. So everybody talks about all these problems we have with the, with the internet. There's bias, there's fake news, there's censorship, there's people being nasty to each other, you know, as if we'd never had these problems before. What a load of crap. You see, these are human problems. We've had them many years ago, and you know what? We'll have them many years from now. This is just a change in venue and form. So let's start. Well, I guess we can go back century. I guess we, we can start with the written word, this oral history, but that would just be ridiculous. So I, I'm going to kind of start with television and radio, or perhaps at the turn of the 20th century. Um, we had an episode, we started with uh, episode 41. I spoke to historian David Petruja, and that was the episode where we looked at changing communication technology and how that impacted presidential elections and presidents over the last hundred years. That was a really fascinating episode. And so, yeah, check out 41. Um, if you, I'll link to it on the, the website. I'll link to everything on the website, localmaxradio.com slash 70, because I suspect I'll have maybe not a ton of links, but a few hard-hitting links today. Uh, so that's where all the links for the show will be. Um, before I get into the first, you know, digital medium. I just want to point out we all learned in school about, you know, so-called yellow journalism in the early 20th century. Yeah, they came out with all these newspapers that were sensationalized and, you know, trying to sell more copies and, you know, well, yeah, like it was only a problem in the early 20th century. I mean, the the term fake news is something that I think came about only you know, a few years ago, maybe 2016, and it was originally used to describe, I think, I, I could be wrong about this, but I think it was originally used to describe sites that were a little like The Onion, where they kind of made up headlines just, you know, to be funny. And then they started posting it around, and people, some people took it seriously, because there's this, there's this law, I just comes, came off the top of my head, it's called, oh, I forgot what it, I think it's Pose Law, where, um, satire in real life don't you you can't tell the difference but anyway some people noticed that people took these headlines seriously so they started seriously writing fake headlines to try to get people to believe things they shouldn't and so that was you could say it, it was an attack on the information system of the internet um but uh 
it, in many ways, it caused social media and people to take more seriously uh, the headlines that they read to make sure that they're correct. So fake news, sens- sensationalized news, that's been around for a very long time. Now, radio, uh, radio comes online. I guess you can call it online, uh, on the air in this era as well. Uh, so that's like 1920s or thereabouts. And the initial reason why you have federal involvement over the airwaves was not for the purpose of controlling information, whether it be you know censorship of X-rated content or political censorship. It was to make sure that everyone kind of stayed in their lane and didn't interfere with each other's signals. Because if you have two people on the uh, two broadcasters on the same frequency, then they interact with each other and you can't listen you're essentially listening to both broadcasts at the same time it's you uh you can't hear what they're trying to say and so it's to make sure there weren't any of these collisions um now radio is you can't sell it well not quite that you can't sell it if you send a message over the am and fm radio everyone within a certain distance will be able to pick up that transmission i remember when i worked at or i didn't work but (laughs) when i spoke at WIBC at Yale. That was 1340 AM, Yale Radio. I think that was a 5,000 watt. Um, that was a 5,000 watt AM radio, which meant it went like a few towns over. Maybe I can go you know, from New Haven to Bridgeport and maybe Fairfield and maybe uh, it clips the top of Long Island because it goes over the Long Island Sound pretty well. So very local. And then some of the big stations here in New York are maybe 50,000 watts, and those can go like halfway across the country. Um, But everyone within a certain distance, as you know, will be able to pick up that transmission. I suppose you can have – so like you can't stop someone from accessing it if they don't pay. Um, And so that – you know, that's that's free content. I suppose you could have someone pay like municipalities and governments will pay for it because they have an incentive to reach everyone, but very few – private organizations or individuals do. So they needed a business model for this type of infinitely reproducible good. I think that the economic term is non-rivalrous. If my neighborhood is list- if, if my uh, neighbor is listening to a radio station, uh, it doesn't make it any more costly for me to do it. And I think it was, you know, one of the executives at RCA when their boss was trying to get into radio said you know, this will never work. Who would possibly want to, or who would possibly pay to send a message to no one in particular? Um, But they made it work because in the early 1920s, of course, you had the first radio commercial. There you go. They found their business model and it's remarkably similar uh, to the model that we're facing online today. Um, And we see that model in both podcasting and in YouTube. Um, I'm going to get into YouTube's problems in a minute because they can't seem to figure out what to do with the content. Are we banning enough people? Did we ban too many people? What has our algorithm done? Lots to say about that. But first, I want every listener of The Local Maximum to understand that we are not in uncharted territory here um, in terms of what's going on with YouTube and Twitter and things like that. So like, that, like YouTube, early radio had a lot of basic news, some boring stuff that very few people uh, want to fill up airtime, 
And with YouTube, kind of, it's just an open model with a recommendation engine. So, of course, there's a lot of bland stuff uh, that anyone can post. I've posted videos that are like, whatever, six people will download this. Um, but in YouTube, you can actually find much more niche value, things that only a small number of people are into. Uh, like, you can have a channel about some obscure video game and potentially do very well. But early radio and the 1920s and 1930s were considered the golden age of radio because that that was your main source of, in, of information and entertainment, particularly in the home. And so early radio had some really controversial figures. Um, in some cases, they're similar to the ones that we have today on YouTube. Uh, I think some of the kind of fascist type people on YouTube are being conflated with others, which is, in my opinion is a pretty nasty tactic that's used by the pro-censorship masses. But let's look at one really extreme figure in history. And I, I want to, as I looked into this, I was like, wow, this is a lot of parallels to one that I have today. And the one I found the most on is uh, Father Coughlin. It's, it's spelled Father Coughlin. I'm probably going to say Coughlin, but I think it's, it's pronounced Coughlin. Charles Coughlin was his name. Uh, this he was a priest in a Sunday afternoon broadcaster. He had something like 20 million listeners in the 1930s, 20 million. So very quickly, maybe it took about the same amount of time uh, as the Internet, about a decade or so. Remember, I, I spoke about self-driving cars with Aaron uh, a few months ago, and we said, you know, people don't think that these systems take decades to develop anymore. It, it, it takes, um, you know, there's this myth that things take shorter and shorter time to develop. And yes, that's true for certain things if they're similar to what, like version two will take a lot less than version one. But sometimes, well, anyway, the point I want to make is the growth in radio and the growth in internet are are on a remarkably similar timescale, like a decade or two. So um, you saw a massive economy of scale for radio, you had this potential to syndicate and to send out your messages throughout the country. And I don't think it—I don't think it was live back then. I think you would send—I don't know if you would uh, send recordings to—I to, uh, I, I don't know how it works. I'd have to look it up. But you do have economy of scale when it comes to getting the uh, getting a message out when you could communicate essentially to the whole country. And so. Father Coughlin was doing that to 20 million people. And what was he on? Some Depression-era version of InfoWars or something like that? Oh, no. He was on CBS. I don't think that you'll find it on CBS's own. If you, if you, if you look up CBS's own, own page and you look at their history, I don't think they're going to show him there. Uh, but, yeah, he was on CBS. And um, was he right-wing or was he left-wing? He drew from both sides, but really— this is an unfortunate fact about the 1930s. The common climate at the time in the United States and around the world, the, the zeitgeist, if you were, will, that's a good word, zeitgeist. It means kind of the spirit of the moment in history. And sometimes you get a really crappy zeitgeist. Like in the 1930s, it leans toward fascism, and you know more so in Europe, but in the United States too. And so this was not anything like you know conservative or liberal talk radio that you might have heard today. Father Coughlin was vehemently anti-capitalist. He believed that capitalism had to be overturned and wealth needed to be redistributed. He believed that the government had to take over key industries, including things like banking and education and healthcare, and like run them for the good of the country. Uh, he was an early and vocal supporter of FDR's New Deal, and he called his philosophy 
I kid you not in this. He called his philosophy social justice. So <laughs> you could say he was a social justice warrior. Maybe that's not a good term to throw around, but I, it seems pretty accurate to place on Father Coughlin, if you could place that on anyone. Now, on the other side, he was also fiercely anti-communist or, or against Soviet-style socialism, but not so much because of their anti-capitalism stance, but because um, you know, communism opposed religion and nationalism. So you need to find a third way there, and it was some kind of economic fascism. Um, he wasn't as hostile to democracy as the ones in uh, or the democratic processes as, as the guys in Europe, but still, he um, his economic program was fascism. He also also anti-Semitic. If you look it up, he lumped Jews in with both capitalists and communists at the same time, which is something I never understood. Can't make these guys happy. So this guy had twenty million active users. I mean, weekly downloads or no, scratch that. Weekly listeners on the radio, twenty million weekly here in the USA. So. But, you know, keep in mind, that wasn't all the radio was back then. I mean, you can't just focus on that. There was a lot of good stuff on the radio, too. This was the golden age of radio, after all. And just like the Internet today, there's a lot of good stuff on the Internet today. And so if you listen to his speeches on YouTube, I guess they haven't been taken down from YouTube yet. Um, And I wouldn't recommend listening to his speeches for long periods of time, not because it's just like there really isn't a whole lot of substance to his speeches, but... You could tell that he took his mannerisms and his intonations directly from people like Mussolini or Hitler. I don't know. Maybe that's just how people talk back then. But it seems extremely similar to me and too similar to be a coincidence. So it's like he he looked at these European dictators and said, I'm going to talk like that because that's what people are responding to now. Um, So maybe you see this coming back. Uh, some of this coming back on places like YouTube, unfortunately. Maybe the 2010s have had a particularly bad zeitgeist, but probably not as bad as the 1930s. So another thing, and this is relevant to what we talk about here on The Local Maximum, is that Father Coughlin rails against the Federal Reserve and the monetary system, and I started to understand why hard money advocates and also like Bitcoin advocates or blockchain advocates, which include myself, by the way, are kind of lumped in with these crazy people. Here's what I think is going on. Father Coughlin and the extreme right and the extreme left, the like economic authoritarians, they rail against the Federal Reserve System, but they do it for the exact opposite reason that hard money advocates and Bitcoin advocates do. So he wanted a more expansionary monetary system. He wanted free silver. He wanted more inflation. And he wanted the government to have direct control of the money supply since the Fed kind of makes it more independent. They take a step back. So... He wants the government to have more direct control of the economy, and he wants to be able to expand the money supply, um, you know, kind of at will. So that means that you have to be really clear when talking about the money issues and when talking about the Federal Reserve and monetary policy. And even then, I could see why the crazies come in. So like, you know, about a decade ago when Ron Paul ran for president, he called for an end to the Federal Reserve and a return to hard money. But I bet you also had some of these conspiratorial fascist type people come and say, oh, here are people who hate the Fed. Now let's join them and then like recruit people from the inside. And, you know, they did that to help the alt-right. You know, we don't want them to really understand monetary policy. No, we just want to direct their anger, feel the anger toward the Federal Reserve and then try to push a more sinister agenda on them. I've seen this happen on message boards and all sorts of places online. And today, 
uh, I think this is happening in the cryptocurrency space. Bitcoin was created by someone who wanted to build a better monetary system, a better internet, and a better world. And Satoshi Nakamoto and others have done a good job describing what that is and why. But when people get lazy and say, oh, I'm just doing this because I hate the bankers or I hate the Fed, and then there's people who don't know why they're in it, and you know they think uh, they get captured in, into you know these conspiracy theories and supporting kind of the opposite of <laughs> what they were initially. They didn't really understand Bitcoin to begin with. They don't really understand the nature of like liberty and the Constitution. And then it just becomes all about hate without reason. You get pulled in this ugly direction. So that makes me think. Because I've been asked multiple times about all the horrible people in crypto, whether it's scammers or extremists. But my advice whenever I'm asked about this is to, you know, stop and really understand what crypto is really about. Seek out the best, you know, knowledgeable people in it. You know, people I've had on my show, Christian Lundqvist, episode five, Naomi Brockwell, episode 37. A really good one online is Andreas Antonopoulos. He has a really great YouTube channel. So, uh, don't surrender to the bad or confused people when you get involved. And at the same time, there's a lot of like well-intentioned disagreements in this space that like turn into this ugly factionalism where they accuse each other of being horrible. You know, you do the work to understand what's going on, to understand what people are saying, and tell the difference between you know who's real and who's not. So do the work to build a better world. Don't run away just because these crappy people come in. That's not how you improve things. So, whoa. <laughs> that was a tangent, but I think it was important to say. Let me take a sip of my tea now. All right. So what happened to this after the 1930s? Because obviously you don't have this type of radio today. Uh, the government decided that, yeah, you have freedom of speech and the press for anything written, sure. But the airwaves are a finite national resource, and we have some control of what goes on here. So Father Coughlin, uh, you know, he he initially supported FDR, but then he was against FDR later. And so it's like, hey, you want some nationalization? I'll give you some nationalization. No more free airtime for you. So for a while, he bought the airtime on CBS, uh, but eventually went off the air. And I think it was a combination of government crackdown during wartime, but also the mood of the country. Uh, from what I'm, from what I've read, I'm willing to be corrected on any of this since I wasn't there. I don't have all day to research this, but it seems like after Pearl Harbor, or even a little bit before Pearl Harbor, as World War II started, I don't think you had 20 million Americans interested in this guy. So 1949, war has been over for a few years. Government, uh, the federal government, in the U.S. liberalizes the airwaves again. And, but they have this fair, fairness doctrine. That means that you have to present multiple views on controversial issues. Of course, the federal government, the FCC, they determine which views are controversial and whether you've indeed covered the multiple views required. So this kind of maybe stunted radio as a medium for controversial ideas for a while. And even though I you know, personally deplore the, uh, view, the views of Father Coughlin, you know, I don't particularly like that, you know— um, well, you know, I have never supported the censorship of people on this program or any time. So I deplore the, the ideas of some people on the radio today, on the internet today. Who doesn't? I mean, there's no one here who says, oh, yeah, everyone on the internet is great. I love those people. There's, I find that person. Uh, but um, maybe the era of controlled and consolidated journalism kind of post-war uh, stunted our ability to detect right from wrong. And we're relearning this now. I don't know. So let's jump ahead and talk about how people got their news and information just before 
the dawn of the internet. In addition to radio still, it was television. And we still have TV, of course. I Again, I haven't heard anyone who's particularly happy with the state of TV news, network news, or cable news. Some people have their favorite stations, whether you like Fox or CNN or MSNBC or NBC. But if you ask someone about the state of network news as a whole, I think you're going to get a pretty negative reaction. Was it always like this? I mean, sometimes people look fondly back on the days when a few networks existed and there's, there was a more dignified news broadcast before cable. And, and again, I'm not so familiar with it. Perhaps it was less partisan and perhaps the anchors were better. But it seems to me like you couldn't have gotten all sides to the story that you get today in that environment. And maybe that's what's driving people crazy, having multiple narratives and realizing that the world is too complex to have a single narrative that you can hold in your brain and be right 100% of the time. But come on, that is the world. So now you have, in my lifetime, partisan news, people shouting at each other. I used to think that was fun, but after a few years, it gets so tiring and so useless. And you know, who thinks TV soundbites are the best way to get information? It's like reading the headlines and just forming your opinions right then and there from the headlines. So now we can finally get to the internet. How long did it take me to get to that? Like a little over 20 minutes. Okay, that's not so bad. All right, so we have Facebook, we have Twitter, Google, YouTube. Talk about just reading the headlines. You know, Facebook and Twitter are literally just reading the headlines. So at least in YouTube, you can go in more depth. Um, although you know, people are saying that that's the problem that we go into more depth. So more on that soon. So the model here is users can just post information for free. And from the tech giants perspective, we tech giants, we will aggregate it. We will slap some ads on it and voila, we are making money like there's no tomorrow. And because it's free, you'll get a lot of good content on there. Uh, so long as we can use a recommender system, of which I have personally built quite a few, not for these guys, but, but quite a few. And then we can get the good content to the top. But we own all the information. Screw your decentralized network idea. We are your nonstop shop for all your news and information needs. Whether you want to learn how to bake a chocolate cake or the highlights in the NBA finals or to discuss the ending of Game of Thrones or if you just want to call for a communist uprising or a fascist uprising, it's all there today on Facebook and Twitter. Now, that wouldn't be my vote for how the internet should turn out. And I think a lot of the big investors, even in these companies, they didn't want it to turn out that way either. You remember even Twitter initially called themselves the free speech wing of the free speech party, and now they compromise on that. But we need to face the reality that this is the way of doing things that's been winning the internet for the last 20 years. But also understand that historically, these vast information systems come in waves, and whatever has been winning for the last 20 years doesn't necessarily have to win in the next 20 years. Now, we dive deeper into the abyss with the curious case of YouTube. There's a big opinion article in the New York Times this week, which I'll link on localmaxradio.com slash 70. It's called The Making of a YouTube Radical. The story centers around Caleb Kane, sort of uh, depicted him as a young man who was lost in life, alienated. That's where you got to watch out. Um, and he started watching YouTube videos and fell down the rabbit hole of the alt-right. And we're sort of told in this article, blame the algorithm. That's sort of what I got from it. Um, I mean, that's, um, that seems to be the message that we're getting. Um, and and th- 
the the news is kind of building support for YouTube and and pressure for YouTube to radically change its algorithm. And so, well, first, I'm not sure that I buy 100% that the algorithm is the reason why this happens. Let's dig into it. Um, They say that the YouTube uh, business, they wanted you listening for longer periods of time because then they could show you more ads, more listening, more ads, more money for YouTube. So that's what they trained the algorithm to do. And so that gave these long-form rants. Um, this is a long form rant now, but the, the long form rants they're talking about uh, is kind of about like, like race and IQ and whatever harebrained theory the alt right comes up with this week. Those climb to the top. But yeah, like I said, is listening for longer periods of time inherently bad? So the alternative is Twitter. You listen to someone for the shortest period of time and it gets shallow and nasty real fast. Maybe it's harder to bring someone over to the alt-right just with Twitter, but you also can't convince them out of it either. And so the article, the, the article also does, it kind of lumps everyone with vaguely similar views or entertainment content together. Uh, and it seems to indicate that the YouTube algorithm will push you to more and more extreme content. And it also has the air of like, all of this is poison. Stay away from anything not approved by the New York Times. Um, or maybe I'm reading into this, but according to this attitude, you can kind of just smear someone by putting them together with someone else everyone knows to hate, and then it's kind of guilt by association. It's, it's a gross tactic, and this is unfortunately, it's bought by a lazy public. Um, but hey, that's, <laughs> there's bad tactics on one side, bad tactics on the other side. I'm sure I've been tricked by that a few times as well. So the implication, and may, this may be true, is that the YouTube algorithm pushes you to more and more extreme content. Um, Here's something that I didn't see in the article. No agency is given to the listener to make their own decision on what to believe and what not to believe. It's like they're automatons. They're fed information from a YouTube video. Wayward young man is just going to soak up whatever is given to him by the algorithm and believe it just because. And, you know, no one is actually talking about, no one... In, in these articles, they don't talk about like making sure people have the tools to make sure they have better decisions on what to believe and who to believe, kind of the education and how to think. We talk about that a lot here in the local maximum. I talk about Bayesian inference that way. I talk about causality myths a few episodes ago in episode 68, where people believe A causes B just because it justifies what they are doing. See the actions of the Chinese government in episode 68 of the local maximum. And there's no focus on actually creating videos and podcasts and information that's going to be helpful to people and either, you know, improve their lives or improve their understanding of the world. That's what I'm hoping I'm doing in a small way here. But I, f- I think you t- if you take the, both the mainstream content creators and the ones that are branded extremist, um, either correctly or incorrectly uh, extremist, I think that many of them, or at least some of them, think that that's what they're doing. They're, he- they're helping people. And um, <sighs> you kind of ask, why aren't I winning? And it's it's not because I'm not making good enough videos. No, if I'm not getting ahead, it's because of the algorithm. Even though there might be some truth to that, you know, we've learned that on this show that like a quote, fair algorithm for YouTube is really not something that we can reasonably hope for. Um, and again, I may be conflating the general New York Times article with the attitude of the article itself, because it does end on an interesting note that sort of approaches this idea, but doesn't really, I don't know, maybe it's trying to 
have you draw a, a better conclusion than it would suggest. But let me read the quote at the end, and you can decide from yourself. So the, the quote at the end of the article is, uh, near the end of our interview, I told Mr. Kane that I found it odd that he had successfully climbed out of a right-wing YouTube rabbit hole only to jump into a left-wing YouTube rabbit hole. I asked if he had considered cutting back on his video intake altogether and rebuilding some, his, some of his offline relationships. By the way, always a good idea. Um, he hesitated and looked slightly confused. For all its problems, he said, YouTube is still where political battles are fought and won. Uh, I don't know about that. but Anyway, leaving the platform would essentially mean abandoning the debate. He conceded, though, that he needed to think critically about the videos he watched. YouTube is the place to put out a message, he said, but I've learned now that you can't go to YouTube and think that you're getting some kind of education because you're not. There we go. Individual agency. YouTube isn't a black hole. By the way, you can get an education on YouTube uh, about a lot of things, but you, he's absolutely right. You have to think critically, and that's the key to the whole thing here. Um, now, my ideal algorithm would work by, if I were designing the algorithm for YouTube and Facebook and whatnot, it would work by ensuring that you have doors in both directions. In other words, it wouldn't steer people towards more extreme content. It would let the user decide where they want to steer next. And perhaps you would kind of suggest things that are adjacent to what they were listening to before, but there'd be kind of a random walk in a direction's other than those we know that the user clearly doesn't like. And I think that's fair, and it puts the user in control. Um, I wonder, though, would this be good enough for the New York Times? Would they still think under that, quote, fair regime, which I'm sure would have unfairness in it too, you know, would they be upset if they're not quite winning? Um, Probably not. Uh, This also reminds me of one of the figures they talk about in this article, Stefan Molyneux, uh, podcaster and, and YouTuber. And I once heard one of his videos where he gave really terrible advice to someone. This person who called in was having trouble at work, and he told Stefan Molyneux a little bit about uh, his com- the company he was working at and what happened. And Stefan assured him that these problems are happening because the modern workplace is essentially rigged against white males. And look, everyone has problems at work, especially me. But this raises all the red flags we talked about here in the local maximum, overfitting, causality myths. But most of all, it's going to leave all these people feeling angry and powerless rather than saying, okay, the world is imperfect. I made some, you, you made some mistakes, they made some mistakes. Let's see what we could do to make the best out of it. No, instead the implication is that you can't succeed and now you need to join you know, a collectivist group or political group, in this case, a right-wing collectivist group. And it's funny that I found that clip because it slightly mirrors the New York Times view on why they're losing the information battle on YouTube. Like, it's rigged against us. The world is full of horrible people, must attack and deflect criticism at all costs. So I think there's a, they need a better framework to work through this, these, these issues. Uh, YouTube doesn't have it. The New York Times doesn't have it. Um, the one area that might be slightly better, although I might get pushback on this, is uh, Reddit. Um, Reddit has lots of, you know, subreddits, uh, different message boards that are moderated in completely different ways. And so there's something for everyone to like, and there's a little bit of cross-interaction. And so I think some of the Reddit, some of the Reddit discussions are bad, but um, there's kind of a marketplace of subreddits, so you can always go somewhere else. So 
Reddit has, of all the tech giants, Reddit really isn't a giant, and neither is Twitter really. Well, they are kind of a giant when it comes to information. But um, they seem to have an interesting handle on this that at least, you know, gets us somewhere. All right. So let's compare all of this to podcasting. Uh, Oh, wait. First, I forgot about this. Let's look at the predecessor to podcasting, and that's radio. So we talked about radio uh, earlier, but hey, 1989, Cold War is over. The Fairness Doctrine is out. You get the big-time radio hosts. You get big conservative talk radio. Uh, In the 2000s, you get the left-wing progressive talk radio of Air America for a while. You have NPR. Well, you always had NPR. You had shock jocks. The FCC now turns to censoring content that's too explicit. Um, And I remember when I started on WIBC at Yale, that was in February 2004, on the first day, uh, they were pretty jittery when the new group of people went on the air because it was like, okay, you just had Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake have the wardrobe malfunction at um, at the Super Bowl. If you don't remember that or... If you were too young then, look up, you know, Super Bowl 2004 halftime show. And so they're like, you know, the FCC is going to give out fines left and right. So be very, very careful about what you say, because <laughs> we're a college radio station. We can't afford fines. Um, so now it's, I think, less of a concern. The FCC doesn't do that as much as less of a concern because of the rise of the Internet. There's so much more explicit content now. And the people who want to put out explicit Content. They have other options. You know, famously, you had Howard Stern going to Sirius Satellite Radio, and man, the news, the the style of radio um, is so different from that you had in you know a hundred years ago. The style, fortunately, the style of the 1930s went away. Hosts are a lot funnier, self-deprecating. Uh, many of the local ones they cater to the business, the local communities. Um, you have some interesting personalities. Uh, the downside is that, and you do have a lot of like heavy, heavy partisanship. Uh, the downside is like the host caller dynamic was always very strange. You'd have callers call in and you'd have hosts kind of yell at them like, oh, you're an idiot. I have the answer. But get it. Or, was it Mark Levin on um, one of these shows in New York? was always like, get off my show, you big dope. And I guess that was entertaining to, to a lot of people. Um, another downside to radio was there was you were on a schedule and you had to keep to a particular time period. So, and when I was on WIBC Yale Radio, I had to fill up an hour and say whatever. And what's great about podcasting is you could say what you want to say. If I want to do a twenty-minute show this week, fine. If I want to do an hour thirty-minute show this week, that's also fine. Um, you want to maintain some consistency, but you don't have to be as exact as you were in radio. And that and then you don't have filler. You don't have callers where you're like, "Oh, gotta go, gotta go." Uh, you know, the, 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 stay on the line, and uh, after the break, we'll get back to you. Don't hang up. You know, and you don't have to, or, or you know, in some cases, uh, the show is ending. Be quick. You have a, uh, you have ten seconds to respond. Ten seconds. You know, um, I mean, <laughs> there's something fun about that too. Uh, but what's nice about podcasting is you could really get into it, and if you need to be shorter, you could always edit later. So. Now in the 2010s, we have the rise of the Potiverse, the universe of podcasts. Let's see the difference between this and the internet giants and the radio. First thing is it's completely decentralized, just like the internet of web pages, for example. Um, Anyone can host 
a podcast. Um, you can, most people do, you can use any number of podcast hosts. Uh, Libsyn is, I think, the biggest one. There's Simplecast, there's SoundCloud, and some of them are free. Uh, most of them you pay a small monthly fee, or you can buy your own server and host it yourself. Now, I don't recommend doing that, um, but if these hosting companies ever colluded to keep you out, it can be done. So there's practically no censorship, no direct censorship. You know, the hosting companies, of course, don't do this. Um, then you have podcatchers. These are programs on your computer, on your phone. For example, if you, well, you're listening to this podcast through a podcatcher. So uh, if you're listening to it on your phone, whatever app you use to listen to this podcast, that's your podcatcher. Um, you know, sometimes they're even in your car. Um, and they let you tune into any of these podcasts. They look for anyone's RSS feeds, anyone's service. Um, sometimes podcatchers, they filter out content, um, but no big deal. You could always switch to another podcatcher. So iTunes, for example, has almost everything. They do some light purging. They don't carry Alex Jones, for example. But if you want the stuff that they purge, you could just go to the App Store, download another podcatcher, and voila, you could get whatever you want. So as of 2019, and... Any podcast can get on at least one podcatcher, or if not, uh, the phone is not going to stop you from using the, the web browser and accessing the sound file directly. So as of 2019, there aren't a lot of recommendations engines out there for podcasts. Maybe that's a good thing that there's no like big centralized one like on YouTube. Um, obviously, uh, Luminary Media's app uh, has one and some other ha have one. Um, but they're not, they're not shoved down your throat. And this makes it harder, I think, for a podcaster to get discovered. Um, that's why, you know, as we were saying in the article, a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the communicators go on YouTube, although there are a lot of communicators on podcasts as well. Um, but it also makes the field more dynamic, you know, because the way to get discovered on podcasting is, one, you can get people in through other media, so people you know in real life or you know, you do live events. or um, But another big one that I've done a little bit of is you can go on someone else's show or have them on your show. And the podcast plus guest dynamic is very different than the host-caller dynamic. Um, first of all, you can't just – and it's very different from the Twitter dynamic. You can't just um, comment on someone's thing and you know start annoying them. No. If you want to talk to someone else, it needs to be consensual. You need to be invited to the show, and then you need to talk it out. So when you invite someone on your show, it's not an endorsement of what they say, and sometimes people confuse this, but it's an endorsement that at least this person's information or ideas are worth contending with, or in some cases, you know, worth debunking if need be. So as a result, this created, creates kind of an organic two-way recommender system. You're not dependent on a YouTube algorithm. It's like the hosts and the listeners do their own screening. And I would even call it kind of democratic in a way. Now, one of the really interesting things is that you hear about people getting radicalized through YouTube. You never, and there's a lot of podcast listeners out there, and you never hear people getting radicalized through podcasts. I'm sure some people do, but you never hear about it on a mass scale. Even though a lot of the YouTube channels that are mentioned in the New York Times article, probably all of them, are also podcasts. Um, and I think the reason is uh, that, um, well, maybe, uh, maybe YouTube is more visible. Maybe there are more 
listeners on YouTube. Um, but again, the there is a more the New York Times is not completely wrong that the algorithm can be improved on because I think this organic algorithm uh, created by the Potterverse um, might be treating people a little bit better. Um, I kind of miss the callers in podcasts. I love having callers. But again, you don't have the guests yelling at callers nonsense that you did before. And um, yeah, if you have a guest on your show, uh, they are taking time out of their, their day to come on your show. And there's competition to get good guests. And so you need to make sure that you're making the most of your time with, with your guests. You need to make sure that you know, you're asking them the right questions. You need to do prep. So I think it's a situation kind of like Reddit where – the worlds collide just enough. It's a good compromise between a centralized source of information like the tech giants where it's a, a free-for-all and then kind of siloed sources of information that don't interact with each other that get people into rabbit holes. So there are problems with both extremes. On one hand, it's groupthink on a massive scale and you know nobody thinking outside the box, which is very bad for society. And then on the other hand, you have people getting deeper and deeper into their rabbit hole, into their theories without being challenged. And that's also very bad for society and the marketplace of ideas. And uh, podcasting today in 2019 has a very good medium between the two. So in other words, don't stop, uh, stop people from digging holes for themselves too much and help them get out if they do. Um, there are a couple challenges in the Potterverse going forward. This will not last forever. Golden Ages are not permanent. Um, there's the business model question that we've talked about last week. And because it's largely a free business model, will we see a lot of consolidation in the podcast space? And also, will podcasts uh, be dependent on RSS feeds, which means that you know it's essentially decentralized? Uh, will that change? I, I don't think so. Um, or you know, will podcasts typically be hosted another way? I don't think that will happen, but you know, it could happen. So Today's episode had a lot of information. I'm still very positive, even after the last few years, about the power of the internet and the power of free information to do good for people and help people. Uh, you just need to get a step ahead of the great consolidation of information, which will always spell trouble. Uh, there'll always be the Father Coglins of the world or the alt-right or whatever. I don't want to pin this on one guy or one group. There'll always be people pushing ideas you find offensive or wrong or dangerous. And it'll always be the case that people won't be as smart as you like uh, in kind of figuring these th things out in your particular area of interest. But if you think about it, they better not be, because if it's your area of interest, of course you're going to be smarter than the average person. But look, uh, with more access to information, people are finding ways to get smarter and improve their lives every day. There's so many courses uh, online that people are taking. You look at these download numbers. Um, people are taking a lot of it. They, they listen to great podcasts like The Local Maximum, for example. Okay, there are others. But with all these voices, people will ultimately find that the world is more complicated than they thought. And they'll, like the guy in the YouTube article, they'll eventually move beyond The Local Maximum uh, that whatever flavor of the week got them into. And we're seeing an explosion of experimentation anywhere from art and music math and machine learning, uh, lifestyle, problem solving, religion and politics, mindfulness. I even had to look that up recently. I didn't even know what it was. But, uh, you know, hey, people are we're all becoming too addicted to our phones. And so now we need like mindfulness to help us uh, 
you know, help us uh, clear our mind. And uh, I didn't know what it was, but apparently it's becoming a huge deal. And in the golden age of podcasts, all of that is working. So let's make the most of it while we can. And let's work to find, to build the best platforms for the future. Thanks for listening to this. I had a, a really good time looking into all this and discussing it with you today. Localmaxradio.com or localmaxradio at gmail.com to email me if you want to continue the discussion with me. I'd love that. Um, I know I said some things that um, might be, you know, that, that could potentially be challenged by some people out there. Um, and, and I'd love to hear from you. Localmaxradio.com slash 70 for show notes. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.